We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening in the studio by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Russ Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing... The latest coronavirus situation from here in Taiwan, the Freddie Lin recall fail, the DPP's Taichung by-election win and an under-fire KMT chairman. President Tsai Ing-wen getting an invitation to attend the inauguration ceremony of Honduras's president-elect. The government planning to establish a Lithuania-related one billion US dollar credit loan program. A dispute between Taipei and the central government over the number of deputy mayors the capital can have due to the declining population there. And new drunk driving laws, which are aimed at allowing the release of the names and photographs of repeat drunk driving offenders. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus situation here in Taiwan. And the Central Epidemic Command Centre has said that it will be restarting the government's 1922 vaccine jab platform from tomorrow. That being Saturday, January the 15th, as authorities are taking steps to get people their booster shots. Officials say the reservation cycle will be repeated weekly to ensure that more people will have access to the said boosters. Now, the 1922 vaccination reservation platform was, of course, first launched in July of last year, but it was suspended in December due to a decline in reservations. The Epidemic Command Centre has now shortened the interval, though, between the second and third doses of vaccines from between five months to 12 weeks, meaning more people can now get booster shots. And that's rather timely because there's a bit of a situation here with a local outbreak in Taoyuan that's spreading, no doubt, as we speak. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week also adjusted its coronavirus quarantine regulations to allow people at lower risk of spreading the disease to be released early from hospital to avoid any strains on hospital capacity. Now, according to health officials, the rules affect those whose initial tests have a cycle threshold value of more than 29, and that level suggests a relatively low viral load. However, they must also have to meet several other criteria for an earlier release from quarantine or hospital. Now, prior to those revisions, all those infected with the coronavirus had to stay in hospital for at least 10 days. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre was rather busy this week because it also published its regulations for the use of Merck's oral antiviral pill. The move comes after Monopiravir, or MK4482 as it's also known, was granted emergency use authorization here in Taiwan. Now, according to the Epidemic Command Centre, the antiviral pill will be used to treat coronavirus patients who have other severe diseases including diabetes, chronic kidney illness or obesity, which could result in serious complications. It will also be used to treat patients aged 60 years or over. And the government have said that it plans to purchase 10,000 courses of the MK4482 and the drugs are scheduled to arrive in Taiwan in phases after the Lunar New Year holiday. So, Ross, there, they're making, opening the registration system to get more people a booster. They're allowing people to leave hospital earlier because of, obviously, concerns about the health system and the MK4482 is on the way. Seems like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, seems like we're just uh, throwing everything out there uh, and in some cases copying what the United States or other countries do, uh, such as by shortening hospital stays or shortening the period between which uh, it's considered safe or advisable to get a booster. I'd like to see the authorities here do their own thinking and do what they think is best, uh, but based on the science or, or justified by 
uh, good medical practice, uh, whether that's uh, how long you stay in the hospital or if you need to be in the hospital or quarantines, which is a controversial one right now, uh, or when uh, additional uh, vaccine doses should be administered. Uh, I'm starting to get concerned, though, you know, based on what you just described, Gavin, that uh, we're, we're just copying or looking for uh, what may be the best practices, but but we're not really doing what's best for uh, local conditions. Uh, maybe it's time for some new thinking over there at, at the Central Epidemic uh, Command Center. So, Brian, new thinking. Yeah, I think that is definitely an issue. Uh, I think there's the issue, particularly in Taiwan, to not actually be confident in one's ability to find one's own path, per se. Oftentimes, there's the imitation of other countries. Or, for example, the way COVID policy has been to date packaged, it's saying, well, this country did this first. Uh, America, the EU, other Western countries are doing this. And so we're going to be doing that as well. And so that can lead to issues if some of these policies have not worked out in those countries. And so in dealing with a time of added stress to the hospital system, uh, to quarantines with all these people coming up for Lunar Near, it seems like these are the measures now being rolled out. But I think then with concerns about the Omicron variant, the CECC is also hoping to use that to boost vaccination, which is slowed among certain demographics. It's, harding, uh, it's having difficulty increasing first dose vaccination. And picking up booster shots, that is also slower. And so it'll be seen then if that will really allow for this to pick up steam. At the same time, I think it's particularly hard dealing with the two-fold uh, threat of the Lunar New Year with all these people coming back, and also that just at the right time, around the time of this, a new variant emerged. And so we'll have to see there. And of course, Ross, you took to Twitter this week to say you hope to see no non-scientific methods used as the government moves forward in its battle against the coronavirus. Sure. As I, as I was just saying earlier, I think any policy should be based on, on good science or good medicine, not uh, uh, over uh, concern or unnecessary fear. That's not productive either. There's no need for that. Nor should it be based on political considerations, keeping in mind <laughs> local elections in November. And uh, a lot of people think that uh, Chun Shijong, uh, the health minister and head of the Epidemic Command Center, um, might be a DPP's candidate for mayor in Taipei City. Uh, so clearly, a, a lot of this decision making is based on political consideration. It's kind of like uh, calling a typhoon day uh, taken to an extreme uh, uh, they just don't want to get it wrong. And that's that's understandable. But uh, if they're going to err on the side of caution in any of these policies, uh, I'll just reiterate again, it should be based on science or medicine and, and not be based on uh, fear or political considerations. Uh, in this in this brief conversation, we've already mentioned hospital capacity uh, as an as issue. But is that really an issue? I mean, are hospital staff right now overwhelmed with with COVID cases, are, are, are there, is there an impending shortage of beds in Taiwan's hospitals? Are people uh, unable to get uh, necess medically necessary procedures? I, I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. Uh, so again, you know, we seem to be uh, operating a bit out of too much fear, uh, erroring on overabundance of caution instead of a, maybe a normal amount of caution. And uh, some of that, frankly, is probably due to uh, concerned about political risk. And Brian, what about the public? I mean, do you see a, a second wave, to call it a second wave, so to speak? Do you think the public is ready for this? Because, of course, people are laxing off wearing face masks, scanning the QR code going into restaurants and shops now. 
Yeah, I think definitely it is the case that as time goes on, you do see this wane in adherence to COVID presentment measures. I think that occurs in Taiwan and also other parts of the world because of, in, for one, quarantine fatigue, but also just being tired of it and then not viewing COVID as a threat. Um, so I think the question then is, can the CCC really get the public to pick this up again? Uh, the public is maybe is just tired of this. However, I do think compliance is still higher than in many other places in which, for example, just you just see masks abandoned altogether. Um, and I think in terms of booster shots, the CC cannot really coerce people to do that, but I think that particularly when there are fears regarding vaccines, people start going for the platforms again, and that might not work out so well for it politically in terms of, it's say, if 192 goes offline and again, one sees the same issue of traffic that once done before, but uh, I think that's just kind of the uh, trade-off then if it's really trying to boost vaccination that way. And moving on from the coronavirus now, KMT chairman Eric Jew was forced to face the press on Monday. That after avoiding them immediately after it became clear on Sunday that his party had failed to recall independent lawmaker Freddie Lin in Taipei and also lost the Taichung legislative by-election. Now on Sunday, Jew failed to attend a press conference in the wake of those defeats and KMT spokesman Ling Tao defended Jew at the presser of the time, saying that none of the referendums or recall votes or the by-election Taijong had been initiated during Ju's tenure. Of course, the referendums were several weeks ago. The KMT initiated two, but backed four of them, and they all lost as well. And now Ling Tao went on to say at that press conference that Ju was simply shouldering the responsibility of his predecessor, Johnny Jung. Now, reports had been claiming that Ju's no-show, though, on Sunday angered many KMT supporters and lawmakers who felt he was trying to dodge the responsibility. Now, Ju on Monday told reporters, though, when he finally faced them, that he will take full responsibility Responsibility for what he called the setback, and he also apologised. However, that didn't quite appease all of the KMT membership group, and they're now stepping up their calls for due to resign as party head, as the two ballot losses last week came only weeks, of course, after the KMT lost the referendums. Now, Dew is stressing that he will continue to build a stronger opposition party ahead of the local elections later this year, but pundits have already been busy saying that the KMT lost the Taichung by-election and the Taipei recall vote because Eric Jew failed to mobilise his supporters. So, Ross, a failure to turn up at a press conference and a failure to mobilise his supporters. The explanation given by Ling Tao for uh, Eric Julie Lun's decision not to attend the press conference in, in the, the hours after the, the loss, uh, uh, both in Taichung and as well as the recall, although the Kuomintang tried to distance itself from the recall in, in previous weeks, uh, the explanation just didn't go down well. Uh, obviously, it uh, didn't go down well with the media. Um, certain party personalities were critical, uh, either anonymously or, or uh, happy to say in the media, uh, show their face and criticize that. Uh, so uh, there's some issues with the team. Uh, and that, that, that's been discussed in the media uh, even before uh, last Sunday's vote that uh, it's a small number of people uh, that that are part of the team and Jew is not getting the broader feedback that maybe he needs to effectively uh, be the opposition leader. Uh, and we could say that, that that's also maybe why they lost, uh, not getting a broad enough feedback about how to uh, pursue both the, the by-election as well as the recall. Look, he's in a, he's in a very weak spot. Uh, the, the government... Uh, the DPP, broadly speaking, remain popular, even when their poll numbers fall due to some current event. Uh, that doesn't mean that the popularity of the Kuomintang goes up. Uh, and 
clearly uh, in Taichung, uh, and to a lesser extent in, in the recall, uh, the, the voters said, looked at the candidates in Taichung and said, we like the DVP candidate. We do not like what the Kuomintang candidate is offering. Um, so uh, whether or not he showed up uh, is, is not as important, actually, as uh, their candidate selection and, and how they pursued both of these political fights. And the candidates. But of course, apparently the spokesperson said this was all Johnny Jung's remit, Brian, and not Eric Jew's. Yeah, so this is actually quite interesting because right after Chu was elected as chair, defeating Johnny Chang, uh, he indicated in his speech, which I was there present at covering the KMT chair election, that he would pursue the referendum and the recall votes as key fights with the KMT. And so although this was something put for Johnny Chang, no mistake, this was something that Eric Chu also took up as a strategy for the KMT. And now having lost in both for the KMT, this is a blow to his political capital, and now people are calling for him to resign. But I don't think it's the case that he can just blame his predecessor. This is really just sticking it to Johnny Chang after the fact, when he did actually use this, and this is what he said he would do immediately when he took office. Um, I do think that it is true that the KMT's mobilization around this was somewhat unusual. Uh, particularly in Wanhua, where I live, the KMT did not really come out with the local politicians, such as the Yirifang, etc., due to internal splits in the area. Um, the recall is quite close, and so if there was actually a stronger mobilization, they put it, potentially put a one there, actually. So that was a bit surprising. And in Taichung, it definitely seems the case that the media had suddenly overcome its fear of reporting on the Yen family, and there's a lot of coverage of their candidate, Yen Kuangkun, regarding corruption, uh, legal property, uh, lavish banquets to try to attract voters, etc. And so I think this is also just uh, a, a case in which the KMT thought it had a, a easy chance of winning, but it did not actually win out, pan out the way it thought it would. And of course, that, that margin of error, that we'll call it a margin of error for Eric Ju there, in the Taipei Wanhua district, Ross, of course, was something like 2,500 votes. Which again goes to show that uh, their, their intel uh, from the ground uh, may have been faulty because the party did distance itself from this recall in, in the preceding weeks or months even and said, oh, well, that's just local, you know, on the ground, uh, Zhong Xiaoping, the, the city councilor and, and some other individuals who are initiating that. We, we silently are on the side. We support that. But it's not us. We're, we're not we're not the ones who initiated this. And now, of course, all those people around around Zhong Xiaoping were, were, were for the most part, Kuomintang people. And some of them are now working uh, for uh, uh, Julie Lun's team. Uh, and Zhong Xiaoping was basically saying, like, if this is successful, you should let me back into the Kuomintang. Uh, so, so try to distance themselves. I, I don't think the, the public was really falling for it. However, the re reality is, and this goes to uh, what Brian was, was saying earlier, uh, the, the party did put limited resource, or, or not 100%, or not 101% resource into the recall. And again, uh, showing that maybe their, their assessment uh, was faulty, had they put more effort into this? I mean, had Drew been working the ground there, uh, or other you know, kind of KMT all-star types and, and mobilizing whatever resources, notwithstanding the Guomindang has, uh, doesn't have the resources it used to have. Uh, that's a, such a small margin uh, that uh, with, with a, a little bit more effort, they could have won that. Yeah, I think that's the case because, for example, the DPP plastered the area with campaign ads. I only saw relatively few KMT campaign ads. The speaker truck campaign began very late uh, only really just before the vote itself took place, when I thought this 
could have taken place earlier. In terms of mailers, there were not a lot of mailers going around, and the talking points were primarily regarding the referendum. And so after having lost in the referendum, there were not any particular talking points used to attack Freddie Lim. And in the meantime, the DPP mobilization, they did bring out all their young candidates. They did mobilize Tsai Ing-wen and William Lai and people like that. Uh, the KMT did not have any corresponding response. There was Zhao Shaogang having his rally in addition to the KMT rally. So they had two rallies the night before the vote. However, uh, these were not as, as well attended, it seems like. And so I think the KMT, if they had really leaned into it even just a bit more, they might have had an excess there, but that was not what took place. And how do you see Eric Ju moving forward, Ross? Uh, yeah, his next challenge is, is the candidate selection process for, for local elections uh, in, in the places where there's a Gomindang uh, incumbent um, in county cities, then that that's one burden that's removed. Uh, on, so unlikely that that uh, there'd be an internal challenge to an incumbent. But in the open seats, uh, you know, that there's going to be some difficulty there. Most most notable one would be uh, in Taipei City, where uh, there's a couple of names who have been in the mix up to now. Most notably, legislator uh, Jiang Wanan. Uh, but but. Uh, you know, that that's that's the big choice there, uh, who, who the party is going to put forward in Taipei and unifying the party around that candidate. And city councilor uh, primaries in some places can get contentious as well. Um, so that, that's that's a huge amount of work, actually. And uh, it kind of remains to be seen if, if Ju really has the desire for that and the planning that goes into that. This is long before we get into the campaigning and some of the things that Brian had just mentioned uh, that occurred or did not occur in Wanhua, like the speaker trucks and the mailers and things like that. So even before we get there, uh, they got to figure out the candidate selection process. And uh, coming off of the referendum losses and the by-election loss and the recall loss, uh, not showing up at the press conference last Sunday night, Mr. Jew's got to show some fire in his belly. And where do you see this fire coming from, Brian? A can of baked beans or a flamethrower? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, it's a question if he finds it in him, because I think the people that do have fire are the people challenging him then. Uh, particularly deep blues such as Zhao Shaogang, Zhang Yazhong, or Han Guoyu are seen as potentially challenging him going into local elections. And because of these losses, then his position or his ability to influence the party is weakened. And this takes place not actually too long after he was elected chair. And so I think he has a quite weak position at present. Moving on again now, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Wednesday of this week announced that President Tsai Ing-wen has been invited to attend the inauguration ceremony of Honduran President-elect Xiomara Castro. Now, according to the Ministry, it received invitations addressed to Tsai from both outgoing President Juan Orlando Hernandez and the incoming Castro's camp to the ceremony, which will be taking place on January the 27th. However, it remains unknown whether Tsai will lead a delegation to Honduras or be sending a special envoy in her place to the inauguration ceremony there. Of course, Castro had repeatedly said that she will sever ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing during her election campaign. However, senior members of Castro's transition team have since said that the incoming government will maintain diplomatic ties with Taiwan, while here in Taiwan, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu has been busy jumping up and down and stressing that Castro's team has promised that Honduras's diplomatic ties with Taiwan will remain unchanged. So, Brian, a surprise to get an invite? Yeah, so this is a turnabout for Castro, who had made it a campaign promise to change recognition from the ROC to the PRC. Uh, this would not be surprising for Castro, who's a more left-leaning candidate at the time. And so 
that this this turnabout happened once she took office is is quite surprising. I think the factor here, the key factor, was not maybe Taiwan itself. It was the U.S. Uh, possibly not wanting to upset the U.S. at the juncture in which the U.S. has made Taiwan's loss of diplomatic allies, despite not recognizing Taiwan itself, uh, into a key issue. And so this is what happened. And so this took place. Uh, surprising when Castro responded to a tweet of Tsai's after her election victory, in which Tsai was congratulating her. And so this is a continuation of that, in which now Tsai is apparently invited to the inauguration. And this actually takes place despite the fact that Tsai uh, recognized the victory of. Her predecessor Juan Orlando Hernandez,、uh, when this was seen as a stolen election by many international observers, and so this is kind of also、uh, quite surprising in that sense that despite Tsai supporting the the previous、uh, president that Castro opposed, that still she refuses to invite to the、uh, inauguration. But I guess these are this is how it, it pans out in terms of diplomatic relations. Why can't the Ministry of Foreign Affairs give an answer?、Uh, Either they think it's safe to go, notwithstanding the pandemic.、Uh, the U.S. would it, would probably、uh, be happy to arrange the flight、uh, or the stopover. Maybe they won't.、Um, but、uh, I, I don't understand the wishy-washiness. Really,、uh, I think that's kind of unbecoming of of, of leadership.、Um, the date's not far off.、Um, they, they should just be able to make a decision. So. Uh, I, I think people in Taiwan would certainly be happy to see her go.、Uh, she should quarantine when she returns, like everyone <laughs> else. I think that would be a good statement.、Uh, I don't know who could possibly be、uh, a special envoy of, of sufficient stature other than the vice president. But、uh, if, for example,、uh, it's former Vice President Chen, who、uh, would be an ideal person just based on. Having been the vice president, he's well liked. Most people here in Taiwan like him a lot.、Um, he does have experience with with overseas travel, but but it's not going to make a statement in the international community if if someone like him uh, attends. Uh, so please make a decision. However, Gavin, I I wouldn't read too much into the fact that、uh, President Tsai was invited because there's plenty of precedent where there there was、uh, an inauguration. And then X months or a year or two later, the country does de-recognize、uh, the Republic of China and recognize the People's Republic of China. A notable example in that part of the world being Panama. President Tsai did attend uh, inauguration. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Was inauguration or the Panama Canal? She attended a big event there in 2016, and then and then a year later,、uh, de-recognition came. So, Brian, could this be a, a fiendish ploy by Beijing to humiliate Tsai? <laughs> So if actually Tsai were to go through with it, and then there's a breaking of relations not too long after, which I don't think is out of the question, then that would be a major slap in the face.、Um, I don't know if the long game is thought out on the part of Honduras to that extent. However, if that were to happen, that would not actually surprise me either. Maybe they could send Morris Jung to be the special envoy, Ross, in case if they're worried about being humiliated. Well, again,、uh, this, this is kind of like the problem with Mr. Jung attending APEC.、Uh, Uh, by video of、uh, or previously in person, but a well-respected guy,、um, known within the business community,、uh, but but nobody is going to be blown away. Oh, Marsh Zhang was there, right? Or VP Chen was there. Wow, Taiwan is really raising its profile. The, you just can't match the president going there. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the government this week announced plans to establish a 1 billion US dollar credit fund to encourage Taiwan Lithuania business cooperation. Now, according to the National Development Council, the credit fund is separate from a 200 million US dollar fund announced by the government some two weeks ago. That fund is geared towards prioritizing investment in Lithuania and will be expanded to include other Central and Eastern European countries. Now, according to NDC Minister Gongming Shin, the 1 billion US dollar credit loan fund will be available to any project that benefits the development of Taiwan and Lithuania ties. And of course, Brian, this was announced like the day after a poll came out in Lithuania saying that a majority of the population there aren't happy with the government's spat with Beijing and they're questioning Lithuania's foreign policy vis-a-vis China. Yeah, I mean, that is a question, particularly in a time which China's political and economic weight is increasingly felt. And so China is, of course, at the end of the day, the larger market. Uh, What's quite interesting is that in terms of this uh, relations between Lithuania and Taiwan, Lithuania's exports to China were not that large. It was 360 million. And so when one thinks about this plan from Taiwan, that's 200 million, and then now one has 1 billion. So Taiwan is trying to make up for that in that sense. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think people would view China as the bigger possible market. And so if you want stronger ties down the line to develop businesses and ties, etc., then China seems like a better bet to, I think, many people. And that's the case with Lithuania or other parts of the world. This is starting to get expensive. Uh, first, a $200 million uh, investment fund and now a $1 billion credit fund. I, I guess it's more like a credit line that, that uh, exporters might be able to access to get financing. Uh, where, where, where's it going to end? Uh, are other countries going to say, I'll open a Taiwanese representative office if you'll give me this money? And why would you say no? I mean, why would you say yes to Lithuania, but no to uh, other countries that might say, uh, we'll be happy to change the name of our Taipei Economic and Cultural Office from Tico to Taiwanese representative office? There also seems to be uh, a lack of oversight. Yeah, everyone in in, in the DPP caucus and the legislature uh, seems to be supportive rather than uh, saying like, well, we'll do our jobs as legislators and, and uh, make sure that taxpayer money is spent appropriately. Because ultimately, this is taxpayer money. I mean, no joke, right? You could say it's the National Development Fund, but uh, that, that's kind of like a sovereign wealth fund and the money ultimately belongs to the people. Uh, and uh, we'll see which banks get involved with offering the credit line uh, or, or might be well, in the first instance, it's more likely to be government-controlled uh, banks. Uh, so there should be some oversight here rather than just saying this is amazing. Um, and then the inevitable uh, phone calls are going to come from the, the remaining countries that do maintain formal diplomatic relations asking uh, why Lithuania is getting this enormous amount of largesse and the aid programs that Taiwan provides to these countries is, um, in some cases, frankly, substantially smaller. And do you see possibly this Lithuania thing ending in tears for Taiwan, Ross? Because I mentioned the poll earlier. And, of course, two-thirds, I believe, of Lithuanians don't approve of Vilnius's China policy currently. And, of course, a lot of people in Lithuania are farmers, where, of course, their products can have a bigger market in China. That was a growing market with the, with the advent of rail transport across um, Europe, uh, from Europe, Central Asia, in, into China. Uh, it, and the... The improvement in that service and costs were coming down. Uh, it certainly made it easier for Lithuanian agricultural products to enter the China market. So they had great potential there. Uh, you can't you can't ship Lithuanian agricultural products to Taiwan by rail. Let's let's be realistic. And air is going to be too expensive. 
And every time I look at the map, I wonder how expensive it would be to ship them by sea freight because uh, it would be somewhat circuitous. Uh, it's just not going to be cost cost competitive for for Lithuanian agricultural products to come to Taiwan. I mean, let's be let's be realistic. Uh, but to go back to your question, there, there's no way to predict now what a future Lithuanian government might do, um, whether they would ask the Taiwan government to change the name to the more normal or common, I should say, uh, Taiwan Economic and Cultural Office. And would the Taiwan government agree to that? There's there's recent precedent, excuse me, there's recent precedent where uh, in 20, especially in 2017, where China put pressure on countries uh, to force Taiwan to change the name of Taiwan's office. Uh, there were some places in the world where the name of the Taiwan office was Trade Mission of the Republic of China and, and some other legacy names. Uh, but uh, again, China put pressure on and Taiwan agreed. Uh, so what happens if, if this money goes out to, to Lithuania, makes investments, but then a future government uh, demands that Taiwan change the office name? Will Taiwan agree? Will Taiwan pull out the investments? Uh, so there, there's a lot of uncertainty here. And again, Gavin, there, there's no way to know whether or not a future Lithuanian government uh, would would uh, say, we, we will, sorry, Taiwan, can you change your name to Taipei Economic and Cultural Office? Uh, at least for now, the current government uh, has taken a strong view that they're not going to agree to Chinese pressure. They're not going to change the off demand that Taiwan change the office name. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, what's interesting then in this respect is that Taiwan's diplomatic repertoire is similar to dollar diplomacy, as it is accused of with its remaining diplomatic allies. Oh no, allies. no, you can't call this checkbook diplomacy. Well, I think that's <laughs> I think that's one of the things then, because Taiwan <laughs> is still smaller, or is, sorry, larger than some of these countries that it is building stronger ties with in Central and Eastern Europe. And so I think that this is a question going forward. Then is that what will happen? Just you throw money at these countries. Uh, what is interesting though is the notion of cooperation on semiconductors has been floated with Lithuania. Uh, meetings between Taiwan and Lithuania to find ways to cooperate on this front. And so it's a question of if that would lead to something. I think that Lithuania would definitely be interested in cooperating. But the question then is, what does Taiwan have to gain from that? Because Taiwan has these closer relations of cooperation now with countries that are able to potentially militarily assist it in the event of Chinese invasion, that is, say, the US and Japan. Uh, this is not the case with Lithuania. But I think that what Taiwan is trying to do here is to try to make an example of Lithuania to potentially lure other countries into closer economic and political cooperation on the basis of offering the possibility of semiconductor cooperation. I think it's really directed at Western Europe. Uh, but then in terms of this, then it, will that be successful? That's a question. And secondly, uh, I think that then just uh, in terms of just, again, just it, it, will this actually pan out or will there be contentions domestically in politics that, for example, leading to reverse in this course? I think there is already is some backlash in Lithuania regarding strengthening relations with Taiwan. And I think it's could potentially be the case with some of the other diplomatic allies that, uh, sorry, the other, uh, the Central and Eastern European countries that Taiwan has stronger ties with at present as well. The interesting thing about something Brian just said is about expanding interaction. Uh, Taiwan is, is known as a trading nation. Right, and Taiwan manufactures traditional industry, tech industry, export around the world. Taiwan companies uh, do business all over the world. People come to Taiwan to buy, uh, or they buy from Taiwan companies. Taiwan doesn't need to prove its its, its ability to have expanded inter economic interactions with other countries. If a, a country wants to buy some stuff from Taiwan, you know, the, the 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 doors open, the sales windows open, the phone the phone is waiting. You'll call up Taiwan and buy. I mean, Taiwan doesn't doesn't need to 
to give uh, or offer $200 million in investment to get countries to buy stuff from Taiwan. So if the, stri if the end goal here is, is greater interaction or greater trade, then you do what's normal to achieve that. You, know, you lower trade barriers, you, you, you limit or, or you eliminate uh, uh, barriers to uh, you know, the import of products, to cu you know, customs procedures, things like that. Uh, you don't need to go around handing out money. And moving on again now, quite literally, because we're going to go about transportation. Because the Ministry of Transport this week announced that it will soon be allowed to make public both the names and photographs of people convicted of repeat drunk driving offences. The statement came after members of the Legislative Transportation Committee approved a proposed amendment to the Road Traffic Management and Penalty Act. Now, according to the Transport Ministry, the amendment to define drunk drivers is now going to be those who have committed the offence two or more times over a 10-year period. It also covers those caught driving under the influence of illegal drugs and transport officials so that motor vehicle offices will be asked to determine where the information about repeat offenders will be published. Now, the amendments could be implemented in the second half of this year and government figures show that nearly 40% of drunk drivers here are, in fact, repeat offenders. So, Brian, naming and shaming repeat drunk offenders, dr drunk driving offenders, I should say. Yeah, it seems like a rather legalistic approach, if you ask me, in terms of just trying to make it shameful to drunk drive and the, raising the fear and the threat of publicly shaming these people to try to deter them from drunk driving. I think this is often the case regarding violent crime in Taiwan or other such incidents in which the call is to increase penalties, as though this will deter this from happening. Uh, in this case, it is trying to use the threat of social shame. Uh, but I think that then one looks at the issue of drunk driving. I mean, for example, people that with uh, are found to drunk drive multiple times within 10 years 88%, but according to statistics, have issues with alcoholism. And so I think this is a problem that requires intervention at this front, uh, treating it as a pro medical problem or a problem that goes back to the individual rather than this, this attempt to just scare people away from drunk driving through stiffer penalties or shaming them or just making the longer, uh, the, the period of time in which you can be labeled a, a repeat drunk driver, extending that period to from five to 10 years, et cetera. Why make it repeat drug drivers? Why just do it you know, for every person? One, you know, the first offense, uh, <laughs> probably because they're worried uh, too many uh, politicians, whether from the DPP or other parties, uh, are going to get caught in that. Uh, it, it's a typical kind of overreaction, uh, or maybe overreaction is not the right word, but uh, you know, we'll just rewrite the laws. And as Brian said, you know, that, that's probably not the best best solution. There are other, other solutions. Um, you know, there's certainly technology uh, that could be mandated in vehicles that, that would help with this issue. Uh, and Taiwan's great at tech, so why that's not being rolled out or may, being made mandatory is, is, I think, a question that deserves further discussion. Uh, but ultimately, this is unlikely to, to resolve the problem. And oddly enough, it kind of reminds me of that recent incident in China where the authorities were parading around people who had violated some COVID-related uh, rules. And of course, outside of China, everybody said, oh, how awful. It's kind of cultural revolution style. Uh, but it looks like here in Taiwan, we're going to do the virtual version of, of uh, shaming people publicly. I mean, there's a lawyer. Ross, do you see any legal ramifications about well, they'll, they'll, you know, there'll, there'll be somebody who says it's, a, it's an invasion of privacy or, or try to make constitutional arguments about why why this is inappropriate. Uh, I, I think those are weak arguments. I mean, if, if the legislature 
passes this after hopefully sufficient discussion, which unfortunately is, is rarely occurs in the legislative unit. Uh, I'm not so so upset over, like, say, an invasion of privacy or, or constitutional issues. Uh, and the reason for that is pretty simple, Gavin. It, typically, if you violate the law, you've been convicted of a crime, that's public information. Um, whether so, we're actually only talking about the format, right? I mean, you could, if you know how, you could you could go through the criminal uh, cases database here in Taiwan and, and find people's criminal uh, convictions. Uh, so again, we're we're just repackaging that into a different format. It, it is rather difficult, unless you really know how, um, to find that information, which is why a number of political personalities have been able to hide their drunk driving convictions because it was buried in the criminal courts database and nobody thought to look for it. And Brian, where could they publish these names and photographs? Because obviously the government have said it's up to it's up to the local motor vehicle offices to do this. Yeah, so I think the funny thing is that it probably would not be the public reacting to what is public uh, published by the local motor vehicle office. It'd be the public reacting to media looking at this website and then reporting on it, which would probably be the Apple Daily or some newspaper like that. And these these uh, outlets oftentimes already sh- uh, serve this role of public shaming individuals for acts that are considered violating the law or otherwise infringing on social mores, etc. And so this would not be any different, except maybe it provides an easier way for them to access this information. What a weird approach by, by the Ministry <laughs> of Transportation Communications, right? They, they help rewrite the law. Right? They go to the legislature and say, you need to do this. The legislators will vote for it. But then they dump the responsibility on, on the local motor vehicle agency. I mean, that, that's frankly rather pathetic. I mean, if you're going to be serious about this, then you should be publishing it uh, right there on the Ministry of Transportation uh, Communications website possibility but will, will people go there not not a place that attracts me really the well, Ministry of transport website uh, <laughs> at least but at least it's a, it's a, it. a at least it's a central <laughs> government ministry rather than dump like i said you're dumping this on a, a much more subordinate level government agency that that probably gets even less traffic to its website anyway before we go this week taipei mayor cohen jur got himself involved in yet another dispute with the central government this time related to the city's declining population now the spat centers on who will have the final say as to whether Kerr will have to axe one of his three deputy mayors due to the number of people living in taipei falling to below the legal threshold to have that many well deputy mayors now article 55 of the local government act states that a city that is classified as a special municipality can have three deputy mayors if its population is more than 2.5 million people. But as of the end of last year, the Taipei city's population stood at 2.52 million, and that was down from 2.59 million in January of 2021. Now, of course, the point is here, why is Taipei's population plummeting, Brian? Well, it is quite expensive in Taipei, so I think people are moving elsewhere. I think also particularly uh, New Taipei is, is somewhere that people often commute from or tower in. The development of transportation links makes it easier to live in more affordable places, but also work and uh, in Taipei. And so I think that is the case. And so it's possible Taipei's population will continue to decline. This is like a, a what do we call it in Mandarin, a jiet, you know, like, like a, 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 not a fake news, but like kind of like a, a silly False topic. Issue. Because... The, the, as Brian said, so people move out right here near the IC, ICRT studio in, in lovely Xinjiang, New Taipei. There, there's a number of new uh, high-rise apartment buildings that have gone up in recent years. Uh, and 10, 15 years ago, 
you know, this is a very industrial area, but it's it's been redeveloped somewhat successfully. You have to give credit to some of the, the previous new Taipei city mayors. Hey, like Eric Ju, he was a, maybe a good mayor. I, I don't know if he's a great party chairman. Um, but uh, uh, so people move to, to newer uh, accommodations that, yeah, it definitely costs a little cheaper. As Brian said, there's there's improved transportation links as well to come to commute from areas like uh, New Taipei or, or here in Xinjiang uh, in New Taipei City to downtown. Yeah, so so to to politically attack the mayor, which is going to happen, right? They're going to say like, oh, he does a horrible job. People are fleeing Taipei. They, they, again, that, that's that's just a typical kind of jiet. That that is just you know, unfair to the city government administration. You know, people are still living. Uh, sorry, they're still working or playing. Uh, shopping in, in Taipei City, even if they live uh, maybe in Banqiao or Xinjiang or somewhere else in New Taipei or, or Taoyuan. Uh, but but let's, let's also be very honest here. Does anyone think that if it was a DPP mayor, the Ministry of the Interior would be saying this? Uh, one, when the number actually hasn't even been hit yet, right? So the population is still above above the, the number that, that uh, legally allows the city to have three deputy mayors. And also, we are only, uh, what, eight months, nine months from the election, 10 months. Uh, so so the, the term of office is almost over. All three deputy mayors will be out of a job when the city government or has the election at the end of the year. Uh, this is for the. This should be for the next mayor. Uh, th- this really just comes across as a way for the government to embarrass uh, America. And uh, like I was saying, with the Ministry of Transportation and Communications dumping the the photos on, for drunk drivers onto uh, motor vehicle agencies, this is really pathetic. I think for the Ministry of the Interior to to raise this now. I think they got better things to do. So what's interesting is that Co has not really tried to attack the central government along these lines, uh, accusing it of, for example, targeting politically this way. He's tried to kind of avoid having to pick between his three deputy mayors. And I think this is interesting as well. The reasons why is a little opaque. There's, for example, views that circulate in the media that Huang Shanshan, one of the deputy mayors, is potentially someone that Co wants to purge politically because of the fact that she never joined the Taiwan People's Party, his political party. Uh, another view is that Huang Shanshan is gearing up for a run for Taipei mayor herself, which would be either with Ko's approval as part uh, with his party apparatus in line or without it. And so Ko himself, when he was questioned on it, he said, well, you know, she could always run without joining the party necessarily, but not indicating if that would be with his approval or not. And so I think this is also becoming a room for speculation as to Ko's decision-making. I think in some ways, Ko pushing the responsibility back to the central government saying that this would be decided according to, quote-unquote, a sequence, but not re- clarifying what this means is also just politically fraught territory in the sense that uh, there's some internal tension within the administration of the Taipei mayoral government uh, that's unclear regarding uh, just kind of the choice of who's going to leave. And that's where we'll be leaving it here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.